I think risk is a term that is thrown around too often by funders and, and it's almost never appropriate. As funders, I think that we don't have a lot of risk. We don't take a lot of risks. There's no risk of losing your job. There's likely very little risk of becoming so ill that you know it, it would hamper your livelihood or your life. Very few of the sort of existential threats face funders that did face many of our grantee partners who are at risk of just going out of business entirely. This is Eight Evolved. I'm your host, Rowena Luke. And this season, we're speaking with donors and investors, driving new ways to deliver aid and improve lives in Africa. It's 2023. We're back. Hope you had a good break. I know I did. Today, we're speaking with Andy Bryant, longtime executive director of the Siegel Family Foundation. In 2022, Siegel was named the second largest U.S. grant maker in sub-Saharan Africa by number of grants given. That puts it just behind the Gates Foundation and ahead of the Ford Foundation. Not too shabby. Over his tenure as executive director, Andy and his team have introduced some pretty radical changes to the traditional approach of charitable foundations. The one common theme across all these changes is the commitment that Andy and his team have to localization. They believe passionately in empowering African visionaries to drive African solutions. In the hour ahead, we dive into Andy's approach to building his team of visionaries from Africa, working in Africa. We talk about how he and the board of Siegel Family Foundation work together to empower that team, to make key decisions about the foundation, including, and this is pivotal, the final decision on how grants are allocated. If you're a donor or you're working with a donor who's serious about localization, you gotta listen to this episode. Just before we dive in today, a quick word from our sponsor, Idealist.org. Are you looking to hire dedicated and talented professionals? Idealist is the number one job board for the social impact sector. Whether you're hiring for a nonprofit, a business with socially responsible positions, or a company with a social mission, Idealist is the best way to reach an engaged community of millions, all looking to make the world a better place. Sign up to start posting jobs today. Go to Idealist.org slash aid to get a credit for one free 30-day job listing. Now back to our show. We began with Andy's childhood growing up in Wyoming in the United States. And the first terrifying experience he had, asking for money from a donor. I grew up in Wyoming, uh, which is a state in the Rocky Mountains of the U.S. No way. Yeah. Wow, I grew up in Alberta. So I'm not a cowboy, but grew up hanging out and palling around with, with a lot of cowboys. We can still talk. It's okay. Pretty homogenous upbringing there, right? Uh, I would say that I was looked left and right and saw a lot of folks who were as lily white as I am, fairly conservative views. I was really fortunate that my family, my, my lovely parents, um, got us out and about. We spent a lot of my childhood traveling around to cool places. When I was in high school, we made our first trip to East Africa and we did the tourist thing. As one does. Yeah. Climbed Kili, did the beaches of Zanzibar, went on safari. Nice. Good start. Yeah. And I remember while well, like sort of ambling around on that well-oiled tourist route in northern Tanzania, <laughs> thinking like, this doesn't seem like the complete picture. There might be like life off the beaten track, you know, off the tourist track. And kind of wondering, uh, kind of sort of planted some questions and curiosity in my mind as to sort of how the other half lived or rather the other 98% of folks who, who weren't sort of um, following those same pathways in that part of the world. Yeah. No, that's a great question. Great question. What was the journey from that young, curious mind wandering around Tanzania and Kilimanjaro to finding the foundation so many years later? 
the foundation found me in a manner. <laughs> it tracked you down. It found you in your sleep. <laughs> so that first experience being a student led to studying there as an undergrad, led to volunteering there as a fellow, led to some low paying work and some little better paying work down the line. But you got to pay your dues later. Gosh, must have been like 06. Um, I was running a microfinance program in northern Tanzania. And my boss, an American lady, uh, told me, listen, uh, we've got a big fish on the line. There's a high net worth guy named Barry Siegel. He's coming to visit. He's a business guy. So he likes market oriented solutions to poverty. You know, he's going to he's going to your, your microfinance work will appeal to him. Don't screw this up. Oh, man. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Good so, luck. Uh, oh, Thank you for, for giving me that entree. All right. <laughs> We're allowed to do whatever we want on this podcast, to be clear. I'll try to keep it to a minimum. I promised my seven-year-old that I would, I would reduce my cursing. <laughs> so, so Barry Siegel and his wife, Dolly, came and visited us in the midst of doing sort of uh, tourist safari. I had my PowerPoint deck, my financials, uh, microfinance client visits set up. I had a three-hour tour that was going to just charm the charm his checkbook right open, right? You must have uh, been and I get sweating. Into, yeah, I get into the first slide. This is my first donor interaction ever, actually. I, I vaguely knew that there was somebody who paid for all the cool stuff we did <laughs> to support communities in Tanzania, but I didn't really understand how it worked. Barry came walking in. Uh, I started into my spiel about 30 seconds in. He said in his very New Jersey uh, accent, I'm good. And he walked out and went and kind of hung out, took some pictures around the village, um, chit-chatted with some kids and some some uh, some locals. and. Um, my boss looked at me and in, in some colorful language said, you did, you screwed that up big oh, time. Oh, no. Uh, oh, no. What was it? Was what, thinking, what, oh, God, what, I would get fired because it's that Barry Siegel. Um, but anyways, <laughs> oh, man, as, he walk- <laughs> as he was leaving that day, he took a napkin and he wrote a five-year, $300,000 grant to support that microfinance program. Boom. And, wow. And even still, even still, as he after he left, my boss and I looked at each other and said, that guy is nuts, right? We're never going to hear from him again. <laughs> And a couple of weeks later, Barry reached out and said, look, I forgot how much I, I, I uh, promised you guys. And so obviously we were like, thinking about adding zeros. But we took that napkin that we kept around as more of a gag gift than anything. And we, we scanned it. We sent it off to him. And that organization is called Tanzanian Children's Fund. And it's still on the books of, of Siegel Family Foundation. must be 15 years later. That's amazing. Wow. What yeah. an incredible guy. I can't even imagine that that just that interaction and what he must have seen and how he decided so quickly and what he must have thought of you after that interaction, right? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, as he was walking out that day, he said, uh, you know, we, sh- we could hire a young guy like you one day. And, um, <laughs> and he did a couple of years later, right place, right time. They were looking to hire up and sort of professionalize the, the grant making for Siegel Family Foundation. And I was coming back from a stint in, uh, in India. And um, yeah, right place, right time. I joined the foundation as the executive director, director of none but myself back in 2010. <laughs> still a great title. It's still a great title. And yeah, and it's slowly but slowly been hiring up and, and getting smarter and beginning to grant make with more intentionality. And that's how we got here. And did you have any experience that you'd accumulated before taking the job in, in grant making, being a donor, any of those things? Between you and me and the in the, the the world, uh not no. I um <laughs> Barry and some board members reached out to me and asked and, and said, hey, look, we're, we're looking to hire somebody to um, to oversee our sort of our nascent grant making. We're starting to build this portfolio. Can you help us figure out wh- what we're looking for? And so <laughs> I think I Googled 
program officer or program <laughs> manager for for funder and and probably copied and pasted a good amount of stuff off the off the web and said like here's the a job description <laughs> now like conveniently enough i think and very unconsciously i think that thing read a bit like a bio of my qualifications it said you know you're probably you're, you're interested in east africa you probably need somebody who speaks swahili which i could do pretty passably nice. and um you need someone who's you know wants to uh be a road warrior and be on the uh, you know uh traveling and, and doing site visits all the time and that was me nice amazing wow well done so let's let's set the stage here's young andy no experience, uh, you know, running a foundation, you know, sort of stepping, signing up for the fake it till you make it role. Um, you sign on day one, you show up on the job. What were your marching orders? What was the mission uh, that you that you joined to fulfill? How are things set up for you in that first year or two of work? Yeah, I, I think it was probably where a lot of new entrants into international philanthropy start, which is one of uh, oversight, you know, sort of like uh a big brother notion, right? Mm -hmm. I'm concerned that, you know, you're making your, your resourcing organizations a, a, a world away, uh, or at least a hemisphere away, um, and wanting to check up on their work and see if they are doing what they say, saying what they do, you know? Um, yeah. So my, my role out the gate was to, you know, parachute into East Africa four or five, six times a year, um, conduct site visits and do conduct really thorough you know, grown up due diligence and try to understand these organizations work and worth probably in an afternoon. Right? <laughs> Clearly, you're going to understand three years of work in four hours. Clearly, that's enough time, right? Well, and that's that was I mean, there's our our first big Eureka moment, which in the moment was not Eureka by any means, but sort of an increasing unsettling feeling is, you know, I'm going I'm visiting. Uh, I'm visiting a Uganda healthcare organization, you know, on Tuesday, and then I'm I'm packing up my stuff, and I'm and I'm flying to Nairobi, and I'm going up country and visiting a uh, Kenya educator on Wednesday, and then I'm flying to you know, and so on and so forth, and I'm getting these like real snapshots of these organizations, the context they work in. I have no sense of who their comparable organizations, you know, what the sort of like landscape is around them. I have frankly, no sense of what the Ministry of Health's, you know, policy vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, uh, NGOs is in country X or Y. And so when I say unsettling, I mean, I was coming back and I and offering what I think was what felt like irresponsible and sort of incomplete, you know, uh, recommendations to our board. But it's funny hearing you say that because even, you know, you, you kind of look back on it with the wisdom of 10 years. But that's not uncommon. You know, you look at, uh, you know, an investor who invests in social enterprise, they'll fly in for a quarter, you know, once a quarter at best, you know, once a year to do their due diligence. Uh, lots of nonprofits, lots of foundations do parachute in, check up on a list of indicators, get out. Um, and so it's not, it's not like, it's not obvious, uh, I would say, <laughs> that this is, that this would give you the misgiving that, that, that you know, it obviously should. Well, and I think, it was not simply the grant decision that felt like maybe we were working with sort of insufficient information. It was also the notion that was pretty quickly developing with, 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 with the board and myself, which was like, we wanted to do more than cut checks. Right. I think it's a pretty common tendency amongst uh, funders and investors alike that they, you know, they don't, they don't like to be feel like, or be seen as, piggy banks, they want to feel like they're doing something really important and unique and making, you know, unique contributions beyond simply provision of capital. And we really couldn't do that without mm -hmm. having, you know, better, 
knowledge and expertise about the context in which these organizations were, were operating, right? That makes sense. That makes sense. What was the first change that you initiated? Like, I think it's easy to, to start the job and do the monitoring as you've been guided to do. But at some point, you decided the system wasn't working and something needed to change. What was the first risk that you took in that role in your position of leadership? Can I go on a, a risk diatribes, like, sideline sure. real quick? Yeah, yeah. I think risk is a term that is thrown around too often by, by funders, and, and it's almost never appropriate. As funders, I think that we don't have a lot of risk. We don't take a lot of risks. I mean, just think about the last three years, you know, living living and surviving as individuals, as organizations, uh, as do-gooders through the pandemic. Funders were never really at faced many of the risks that our, our, our grantee partners in their communities face, right? You know, there was, no, yeah. there was no risk of losing your job. There was likely very little risk of becoming so ill that, you know, it, it would hamper your livelihood or your life. Very few of the sort of existential threats that face funders that, that, that did face many of our grantee partners who are at risk of just going out of business entirely. And funders are a fearful bunch. I think they talk about risk. They create, they invest time and, and treasure in risk mitigation strategies, but not to sound too hyperbolic, but I think there's one real risk that funders face, and that's kind of the risk of missing big, cool opportunities to be social change venture capitalists. You know, I think we're yeah. often really risk averse. We do really conservative investing. We find safe bets. We're not sort of funding cool stuff. We're funding with a lot of restrictions, yada, yada. Anyways, like that's my little sideline, but no, that, that's really insightful. That's a really so good I would, point. I would propose like we talk about opportunity seized rather than risks overcome or something like that. Let's and do the it. The first opportunity we seized to answer your question, we started hiring up on the ground in East Africa, you know, uh, in the communities and countries in which we were looking to do some good with our capital and, and, and other forms of support. Um, our first hire was, to be fair, uh, an American lady named Ash Rogers, who's now the who now heads up one of our longstanding grantee partners, Lawala Community Alliance in Western Kenya. Wow! Who I think you know from other yeah. lifetimes. I've heard great things about them. But quickly, we started. We took that sort of initial toe in the pond of hiring up locally and started hiring up with locals locally. I'm really, really proud to say that at this point, about three quarters of our staff. I mean, we're 20 deep, but. Three quarters of our staff are, are nationals of the countries in which we operate in East and Southern Africa. And wow. holy cow, I mean, every time we've hired an additional visionary staff member Africa side, we've gotten that much smarter. And so that's incredible. Where I felt sort of kind of irresponsible bringing back intel and diligence on partners in those early years when it was me doing the sort of A to Z prospecting and diligence. Gosh, I felt a lot smarter coming back, carrying the, the the diligence and insights and intel from our from our program officers in Bujumbura, in in Lilongwe, in Nairobi. Suddenly, yeah, suddenly we got pretty clever. <laughs> I think it increased. I think it improved our taste, and 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 probably most importantly, it allowed us to seize on the second opportunity that's I think come to define the Siegel Family Foundation, which is it allowed us to find awesome locally led organizations. That quite honestly, I could have never found and we would have never found otherwise because we didn't have like the the trusted informant networks. We didn't we had never sort of gone through, you know, we'd never been part of the classrooms. We sought to transform the clinics. We sought to improve like people who'd actually been educated or 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 engaged the healthcare systems in these countries. You know, lo and behold, our best place to figure out who are the innovators and visionaries within those spaces, you know, looking to make them better. That makes so much sense to me. But let me just voice some of the questions I'm sure our audience has, uh, which is, 
hiring in general, it's an insider's club. You hire people you know, you went to college with, people who speak in a way that you understand, communicate in a way that you do. Um, you know, maybe, they, you know, they say Americans are very outspoken. And so sometimes it's nice to see that young, outspoken person and just and say, OK, I'm hiring them because they're an effective communicator and not because they're American. I'm sure you've had to come face to face with your own biases uh, and the lack of a pre-existing social network or professional network to leverage when you embarked on your hiring effort. What are some of the things that you had to figure out along the way? Did you make any bad hires in that in in the first couple of years? What are some things that you that you figured out in that process? Sure, I'm certain we made we've definitely made some bad hires. I think it's part and parcel of building an organization. No, we came to find, I mean, you mentioned sort of like this reliance on personal connections or old boy networks. Yeah. I mean, I think you find that network that is suitable for that context. And so, yeah, we absolutely rely on old boy networks. They just happen to be these awesome, robust communities of grantee partners, right? And funder friends located locally, right? So hiring has actually become pretty, I think, relatively uh, straightforward for us because um, by and large, the folks do come with personal connections to our to our grantee or or local community of of funder friends. The other way that I think that we've gained that system. So, step three in our sort of localization journey: one, we started hiring up locally; two, that allowed us to find great local grantee organizations, the folks we funded. Number three is we started to build out more of that ecosystem. So, service providers. So, we have a talent firm that helps us find great people to hire. Uh, it helps us with those vetting processes that's based in Nairobi, co-led by a Kenyan lady. And sort of trying to start to localize every link in that chain when it's appropriate, right? So like I justify my existence still because I think there's a good, there's a there's a lot of value in having, you know, Western members of our staff, especially when it comes to engaging other Western funders. Time zone wise, yeah, like you said, sort of people that are, look, act familiar, speak familiarly, like, you know, like there's a lot of good reasons why why I can exist in this in this value chain still but um though it's something i do on a daily basis look in the mirror try to figure out do i have a place in the, in this space when we are an organization committed to sort of trying to localize as much of our our uh, sort of uh, offering as we can yeah that makes sense i think you said something really valuable there about the local networks and the inherent value that is created in building the network I, there's one thing saying that how effective can you do monitoring a five-year program in a week uh, but it's a, it's a slightly different thing to come in and say, okay, who are some of the key actors in this community? How can I network out from them? How can I understand the dynamics of the thought leaders in this country, in this space? And once you have that network, then there's a ton of follow-on benefits on the hiring side, on the grantee side, um, and and so on and, and so forth. Uh, so that seems that seems like a like a big unlock for you in terms of your hiring approach. What about on the grant giving side? Um, so again, like part of what Siegel is so strong and so good at is having uh, your your African team and being able to fund local African organizations. But maybe the way that they work is a bit different, or maybe the way that they track their indicators or their there's lots of things that Western organizations that maybe come from a more culture of USAID expects uh, that maybe you won't find obviously in a local African organization that hasn't had to deal with USAID. What are some of the things that have allowed you to work effectively uh, with the huge number of local organizations that you support? And it's it's a lot, right? It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. At this point, we have about 380 grantee partners on the books. Wow, that's crazy. 
So we have about six, six and a half focus countries where the 95% of those grantees are reside. So what it boils down to is, is a country side, you know, a country portfolio of 70 or 80 organizations. But to your point around, you know, sort of that network, that robust network being a, a positive more so than a negative, a lot of our diligence, a lot of our sort of housekeeping or oversight is derived from that network, right? So I would challenge funders to figure out, you know, when they've heard about an issue of fraud or a safeguarding concern or any or mismanagement or or just some negative, you know, just kind of to figure out where they've sourced that from. You know, for on our side, by and large, we hear about the stuff, the, the problem children or the issues that we have to deal with from that network, right? So the robust the robustness of it is actually like a, a positive, and that's really really useful. Um, not through a, a, a report submitted by a grantee through our sales force, which is useful and in one way, but it's not going to be a way that you hear about sort of like the really good stuff or the really bad stuff that's happening. That makes a lot of sense. Like in some countries, like if you're if you're operating in Burundi, Burundi's not a big country. There's only so many you know, nonprofits that are doing significant work in this space. Like at some point or another, if one is misbehaving or misusing funds or not providing quality services to a community, the community knows it. And you just have to have the trust, have the right communication channel open to hear that a nonprofit is not doing its thing correctly. And you hit it on the head. So trust, right? That is the ever elusive thing that all funders seek and talk about as sort of the basis for their awesome grantee funder relationships and all grantees turn away and roll their eyes. Right? <laughs> like, we're ever going to trust you when you hold like this, this guillotine above our heads in the form of, you know, continued funding or, or not <laughs> for us. Like trust is a pretty simple equation. It's, it's time plus delivery on promises. Right. And that time, like the longer the tenure of partnership, the more that there's an opportunity for legitimate, honest trust to be built. So we're with those 380 odd partners, the expectation is that we're going to be uh, making grants to them. And, and I hope partnering with them in ways well beyond financial support for seven, eight, 10 years, you know, that's a good, like you could, you could raise a, a feisty teenager in that time nearly. Right. <laughs> so like, that's a, that's a decent amount of, of time equity to devote. And then along the way, we have to deliver on our promises and, and, and likewise our grantees do as well. And if you've got that, then you start to develop a modicum of trust that allows for, for them to be really great informants to how we can improve, you know, and like that's that related to that ever elusive trust is ever elusive, honest feedback about what a funder can do differently. And like, that's one thing that funders are, are pretty challenged is to, is to receive honest feedback and then actually hear it and absorb it. Right. Um, yeah. I yeah. think that we're, we've been really fortunate that we have some We've built some of those trust-based uh, relationships where we've got a lot of partners who I think will tell us when, when we're way off. And I would say a lot of our best, our best inventions, our best programs have been a result, have been heavily tweaked or informed, or just the reason they exist is because of good feed, of, of challenging feedback from our grantee portfolio. Is there an example of challenging feedback that you received that really kind of, you know, made you take a beat? Yeah, I think I think one example. So we've got this awesome program called our African Visionary Fellowship, mm-hmm. and it's basically the creme de la creme of our portfolio. Folks, we we've we've come to know and trust because they've been in the portfolio for three or four years. We identify them and put and 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 tag them as African Visionary Fellows because it sounds important, and we can use it as a promotional platform, but also because then we can sort of invest heavily, more intensively than we would otherwise 
in sort of a two-year fellowship treatment with the idea that they come out the other side bigger, faster, stronger. Nice. Well, that sounds amazing. We went into that. We went into, well, yeah, it sounded amazing. And like the theory of it sounded great when we were sort of sitting on the bench or, or, or having a gin and tonic together and dreaming and scheming as a staff. But then we got to the first fellow retreat of the African Visionary Fellowship back in 2017. We said, oh, shit, we don't actually know what we're supposed to be doing here. Like we can <laughs> We could copy and paste an Ashoka Fellows program. You know, we could kind of figure this out on our own, like uh, unilaterally, but we probably want to start this program on the right foot. So what we did, and we more or less locked that initial cohort of fellows in a room and say, integrate with one another and then come out or <laughs> come out when you're ready and tell us what we, you know, what we, what this thing is supposed to be, what, it, what it's supposed to mean for you, right? How it can be valuable. And so, like, and so after a couple hours, way longer than we anticipated. Did they have food? They, we kept the coffee going, right? Okay. Caffeine, coffee will work. Good enough. All ideation and, and, <laughs> and cool stuff. <laughs> they came out and they surprised us a little bit. They said, look, like, we need you to do two things for us. We need you to help us change the game, you know, help us to, to do the big picture stuff, which is bring Western philanthropists closer to Global South doers, uh, help these Western philanthropists understand how we envision impact, how we think, how we talk, how we, you know, wow, that's a tall order. Us, right? No yeah. kidding. Right. Wow. The big, let's help us change the game. But then they surprised us said, but in the meantime, we got to play this game. Right. <laughs> so huh. help us do our elevator pitches, help us get our KPIs in order, help us talk, help us speak donor, right. Uh-huh. Get us to the soul world forum. Get us to opportunity collaboration. Get us to uh, to different sort of like conferences and fori. Um, give us those spotlights to shine. Um, we'll do our best to bring ourselves to to the funders in a manner, right, and make ourselves more readily sort of receivable, understandable, enticing to Western philanthropists. And so, with that dual mandate, that's how we sort of set about to build the African Visionary Fellowship. And that was really useful because otherwise, I think we would have been really loath to do any capacity building. You know, that's already a really loaded term that some people grimace <laughs> oh, at. Yeah. Right. So org dev, TA, capacity, you know, I don't know. They're all words. At the end of the day, it's like, do we deign to provide anything apart from cutting unrestricted checks? Does that feel paternalistic? Does it feel like we're colonizing in a di- under a different name? And but the fellow is saying, no, 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 these are needed inputs, right? Every org struggles yeah. with different sort of capacity areas. Like, let's help us meet those. We we want to shine, right? Nice. Because we can't wait for that big picture. We can't wait for you to overhaul the entire like to, to shatter the paradigm of Western philanthropy vis-a-vis global south development. So, anyways, that was a good that was a good bit of feedback that we've taken and tried to really bake in. That's a great example. I love how you took that moment of panic from the first retreat where you weren't really sure what to do. And you did what you do best, which is gave people a space to solve their own problems and actually ask for the kind of support that you are uniquely positioned to provide and to help shape the program around you. So that it sounds, it's reminiscent of the the flavor that you've applied across the many different layers of your leadership. Um, I'm interested also to hear about maybe, you know, going back to the the question of, of trust and the role that you play with your, with your portfolio, unrestricted funding. I think that's a hallmark of, of your approach. You know, this unrestricted multi-year funding for the organizations that you believe in. That also sounds like a risky approach for many reasons. Obviously many foundations and donors prefer restricted funding. Can you talk a bit more about how you introduce that into the Siegel Family Foundation? I'll tell you one thing we found early on was, okay, a couple things. One is we were doing 
project-based funding back in like 2011. Mm-hmm. And we were asking for quarterly reports. So what that meant was that we got three reports each year that were basically doorstops that we never cracked. And then the one that was closest to the grant renewal date that we actually looked through. And we found ourselves asking questions like, well, they reported about this building that they built or this specific program that we, they ran, but how is the organization doing? How are the communities doing? And it felt like we were getting such a narrow slice of the picture. So functionally, we were wasting a lot of their time asking for all mm. these reports. And reports related to a project that just gave us such an incomplete picture of what we actually wanted to know. So it was more of a functional hack for us, which is like, all right, let's not ask for a bunch of paper that we don't actually won't use meaningfully. And it'll be a waste of time. And then also, let's just like, let's widen the lens. There's a, I think, a kind of an erroneous pushback against unrestricted funding that it means like there's some degree of accountability that's lost by offering really flexible funding. I think, you know, for us, we we still track key performance indicator of partners. They're just derived by the partners, right? So we ask, like, what are you trying to accomplish this year? You know, narrow it down as much as you possible. What are your headlines? And those are in our sales force. They're reported against uh, on an annual basis, no longer a quarterly basis, because that was insane. So I can tell you, you know, I could look at any of the 380 orgs in our portfolio and give you a pretty precise picture of how they're doing, right? Across a lot of measures, a lot of quantitative measures provided by the partners, validated by our POs, and a lot of qualitative uh, measures that are mostly sort of provided by our POs. And that feels complete and adequate and accountable and also like functionally just you know, it's not a waste of anyone's time. I, I hope feelings aren't hurt. That said, I'm, I'm totally cognizant that I'll tell you, it probably takes a couple hours, definitely single digits to do all of the reporting burden, the administrative burden required by Siegel family. And I guarantee our partners say, nope, it's a multiple of that, right? Um, <laughs> like everyone, it's always eye-opening and people are like, no, I spent 25 hours. Like, how could you possibly spend 25 hours? Well, because it's important to them and this that relationship is paramount to them. And like, I think we take that for granted that like we're super streamlined and stuff. So something we've kind of tried to do on our side is, is regularly try to take a red pen to our diligence, to all of our sort of uh, the, the reporting burden we're asking of partners. And it's not that even just the re- formal reporting, it's every time we say, how's it going with COVID? You know, what's your COVID response? Every time we survey them, how are we doing? We're going to issue a grantee perception report in Q1 of 2023. That's going to take a couple hours per grantee to do, right? Like we're asking of their time and their focus, their limited time and attention all the time. And I don't think we have a complete picture of that. So it's helpful to try to stop and reflect on that on occasion. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that makes that makes so much sense. Looking back at the the years that you spent ref- taking this program, this approach, and, and there's multiple programs within the Siegel umbrella. Certainly, won't, we won't have time to get into all of them. Although I'm certainly interested in all of them. So clearly, you've innovated uh, on on the program side. Uh, what were some of the major setbacks or dead ends that you faced? What were some of the things that you, you know, that made you sweat? <laughs> when you were trying to figure out the right path forward for this really unique opportunity and time uh, that you have to run this foundation? Well, one of the, okay, one of our biggest failures has a happy ending of sorts. There is an entity called the African Visionary Fund uh, that exists and is now in its, I think, bringing on something like its fourth cohort of of African-led organizations that they give multi-year unrestricted funding to, and they do a tremendous job also kind of building the movement, speaking, writing, evangelizing, holding signs on street corners, just advocating for funders to appreciate local orgs in the African context. 
it's it's we're so well aligned. That was an idea that was sort of conceived of within our team. And in fact, the African Visionary Fund's founding executive director, Katie Buntenwamaru, was a colleague of ours. And it was her sort of kernel of an idea that while she was still on, on our team. And we went down that road. We started uh, building financial models, figuring out the what for of how this thing would function. And we just couldn't, we couldn't get it done. We were too busy. We were too distracted. We were too inexperienced at fundraising or even just like conceiving of how we could fundraise. And we couldn't get it off the ground. And it was sort of, um, it was DOA within SFF. And then Katie went off and built it herself independently. And so the thing exists. Huh. It's awesome. They've wow. raised like a million bucks. It's really meaningful capital. It's really meaningful sort of advocacy and movement building, but it needed to happen elsewhere. We couldn't do That's that. That's so interesting. In- wait, wait, wait. Let, let me put that back at you. So you you tried to incubate this program that you knew was a good idea. You knew had legs legs inside your organization. Your relatively small team. You just you were spread too thin. Didn't work out. But when she when you cut it loose, when you set it free under someone else's leadership, uh, she was free to make decisions without consulting you. You know, sort of on her own on her own initiative. Then it started to get momentum. Then it started going where you wanted to see it go. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And now it's like, it's still really well aligned. I mean, it's values aligned and we share a lot of common grantees. We share a lot of Slack messages and, and a lot of co-conspirator <laughs> stuff. How interesting. But it exists independently, so it's even better, right? Because yeah, it yeah, yeah. Be, but was it, you know, was it hard for you to let go of that control? You know, it's, it's a significant amount of capital, I'm sure. And just like the, you know, the idea is one that you're excited about, you wanted to lead. How did, how did you, how did you let go? I don't know. I can't speak on the rest of our team. For me, it's not so hard. <laughs> when I do all those personality assessment things, I always come up with an archetype of like a coach. Yeah. I think I find myself really comfortable trying to set other people up, to, set other people up to kick ass and and be in the spotlight and and receive their rec- and their proper and deserved recognition. So for me, it was like it was just seeing something beautiful that I kind of knew from its early days become something like grow into like fruition and become the, something substantial and real and important. And that was really awesome. Um, nice. Yeah. Wow. So, and also, I mean, and with Katie at the helm as a former colleague, that's something that we've been really excited about here is kind of the notion of the, the foundation becoming a talent factory. And so some of my favorite successes have been when someone spun out of our universe and went somewhere else and infected some other organization or place or scheme nice. with a bit of like Segalian-ness. <laughs> Kind of like, I don't know, blue collar, informal work ethic. And so I mentioned uh, our first Africa side hire, Ash uh, Rogers, heads up one of our longstanding grantee partners. Uh, Katie runs the African Visionary Fund. Um, One of our board members is a former colleague of mine, Evelyn Omala. Um, She's down in Australia as a philanthropic advisor, kind of influencing that whole space. And so these alums are, are carrying, like we're building a movement together. And that's pretty cool. That's amazing. And we're fortunate because I don't, we don't need credit. Our board doesn't demand that we sort of take credit for every possible thing that we could. It's not, it's not in our interest. It's not, it's not interesting. So it's really awesome to see folks just go and do something bigger, better and badder somewhere else, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing to hear. On the topic of, of letting go, I think there's another really key decision that you've moved to decentralize. Um, and, and I'd love to hear you talk about the mechanics of how it works, which is the decision whether or not to fund a particular organization. I think it's, you know, it's a big question. Everyone internally and externally wonders that question. Sure. Yeah. I mean, 
the headline is that 100% of our grant decisions are made by our, our program officers on the ground in East That's and Southern Africa, right? Yeah. You don't miss that? That ability to say yes yourself? Oh, no, I don't miss that. No, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't miss making bad decisions and ill-informed <laughs> ones at all. Um, now I get to benefit from them and have and get to talk to people like you about how awesome it is. Um, <laughs> no, and I think more important than me, which I've never missed it much, you know, or, and, I, and I felt much relief that the less sort of uh, uh, agency and control I had over our purse strings at a, at a grantee level. Um, more importantly, our board has been comfortable with that, right? Our board of directors has given us a really broad mandate when it comes to our grant making. And it starts with sort of Barry's initial kind of thing, his, his, his turn of phrase, uh, which is he, he's always been someone who wants to fight for the little guy, right? Nice. And so we figured out it. what does fighting mean? What does little mean? What does guy mean? Um, <laughs> mm, in our case, it means all these disenfranchised, historically overlooked, underattended, underfunded, proximate-led organizations in, in that part of the world. And then the board's gone further and said, look, you know, we want to do this in sort of the broad sector-wise focus on health and education livelihoods, but that's pretty all-encompassing, right? And so then what we do is we go to our teams on the ground and we say, look, in the context of Kenya, in these broad health, education, livelihood spaces, where can Siegel families' uh, capital and capacity and community and connections and other Cs, where can that be really put to best use? So in Kenya, for example, that team there has decided that across the broad health space, uh, mental health is a, a specific area of focus, right? Oh, interesting. There are, um, just as an example, but in the Kenya space, you know, we're trying to find awesome Kenya mental health innovators and, and resource them and also bring some promotion and other people's capital to bear on, on their work because it's pretty underattended, right? Maybe elsewhere in Malawi, that might be the community health worker space and community health extension. So at a country level, our teams on the ground are building country strategies, looking within these broad sort of mandates from our board and from our from from our global team and figuring out what matters in that particular context. And that's, I think, held us in really good stead. Nice. It's also been, I hope, really useful for another big piece of our work, which is trying to play nice with other funders. And so huh. when another funder from the U.S. comes and says, like, what are you guys doing in Kenya? I can say, well, it's really interesting. We've got this sort of budding sub portfolio of mental health actors doing incredible work. They're taking something that is not by any means universal or, or sort of generically applicable. And they're figuring out what the Kenyan context means and what the Kenyan solutions for for trauma and what health and wellness mean in that context. And that's pretty cool. And lo yeah. and behold, other funders have been really excited about that. And so. Part nice. of our own maturation has been to sort of evolve how we think about ourselves from sort of a grant maker to, to more of an Intel clearinghouse, right? Where we're making grants and we're trying to directly resource awesome visionary organizations, but we're also trying to be really useful and provide timely and accurate and, and, and meaningful intelligence to other Western philanthropists who don't have teams on the ground, don't have the body of experience, you know. Nice. Trying to capitalize. I mean, a few years back, we realized we're sitting on a mountain of useful intel and selfishly or just like lazily or for a lot of reasons, just kind of using it ourselves and not sharing it forward. And so we've really tried to be more proactive with that, trying to sort of engage our peers and, and, and be useful to them. Yeah. What I love about that is that you have a unique kind of 
flexibility and, and ability to implement things as you know they should be implemented um, and to provide funds in a way that is non-traditional because you work at a family foundation and Barry Siegel is the man that he is and the family is the way that they are. Um, and you're using that to generate intelligence and to build a team and to fund country strategies that are formed and created in a way that's different and that can create value beyond just your foundation. And that seems like a really powerful niche for a family foundation to fill, you know, a, a niche that has influence over a much larger array of donors. So it's exciting to see you step into that space. And I'm going to ask you two last questions before we switch over to the rapid fire. One is, when did it all solidify for you? I was looking at your 2021 year in review video, which is awesome, by the way. And it feels like just in the past couple of years, like you, you guys have really figured out your model and you've picked up steam and you are moving when, when did that happen? How did that, how did you know that you were ready to like really push forward full steam ahead? Oh, I, I appreciate you thinking that we've solidified. Uh, <laughs> what, you don't have it all figured out? It might, be, ah! <laughs> it might be gelatinous at this point. We started as a puddle of, of tears and, and confusion and now maybe we're sort of like a blob. No, I think, I mean, <laughs> hmm. our evolution has been so incremental. I, yeah, I, I think of sort of like the difference between evolution and revolution. And like, while we've had some sort of eureka moments, they've mainly been eureka in hindsight in terms of being real specific, acute inflection points. It's been sort of a series of decisions um, to, to sort of move us from, from here to there. And I don't think that we've solidified anything. I think we've got this, I've got, we've got a really big ambition. Um, we've sort of developed this thing that we call our, our vision 2030, um, nice. which is that we want to, we want to build and, and, and be supporting the most influential network of, of development actors in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, by the end of this day, nice. which is a really, really aggressive, uh, sub, slightly fuzzy, ambitious mandate, but how that's going to look, how we can possibly deign to, to exercise that level of influence, or, or at least sort of like cobble together the, the relevant rock stars to, to exercise that influence. There's still more question marks than answers. So I don't feel solidified at all. Like, <laughs> well, you're doing debate. a lot of work. But that's part of the appeal. <laughs> I mean, I've been at this for 12 years in this job and started from scratch as a fake it till you make it. I'm still faking it and making it <laughs> to something. I wouldn't know it. <laughs> but we've never done anything the same twice. Probably, you know, and that's both a, a good thing and a bad thing, right? Like it, it, things are so dynamic, changing all the time, fresh, interesting. It feels like permanent startup mode in a good way. And then at the same time, I think something that we've always been challenged with is slowing down and reflecting and, and learning from our mistakes and our successes so that we sort of get smarter and smarter. So, yeah, I think we're, we're not quite solid, solid state yet. Well, you've got a hell of a track record. I think some of the organizations in your portfolio are ones that I have a huge amount of respect for. And, and I'm sure like any portfolio, there's there's the ones at the top and the ones at the bottom, but you've got a, you've got a good number at the top. Um, so I'll definitely be keeping my eyes on you in, over the course of the next couple of years. You actually answered my second question, which was about the future. So we can skip directly on to the rapid fire questions. Unless there's anything else, Andy, you'd like to add before we start winding down. Earlier you said, you know, you, you occupy this niche. And I do think that's something that is is changing over time. I think, you know, we used to be the folks at a conference that had a niche. We're like, oh, those are the, that's Siegel family. They support local orgs. That's cute. <laughs> They're over there. You know, um, people would dip their toes in. The really neat, interesting evolution of this space is, you know, last three, four years, you know, ushered in by a lot of the social justice movements the last few years and the pandemic, 
interest from other Western philanthropists in what we do and in, in, in sort of really the nuts and bolts of how to, to localize your grant making um, has become kind of a, not a niche no, any longer, but sort of like a real specific and, and, and sort of big area of focus. So I think it's really cool to, um, to be in that niche right now and trying to figure out how we can, how we can leverage a, a decade of expertise to, to be useful for other funders and, and uh, make more resources flow. Sounds like you're already a decade ahead of everyone else that's now trying to catch up with what you figured out 10 years ago. But anyways, rapid fire questions. First question for you, Andy, is about differentiators. There are many different kinds of impact-driven organizations that knock on your door. What is one differentiator that helps you determine the kind of organization that you'll fund? Now, I know you don't make the decision anymore, but maybe you could speak on behalf of your staff. So we focus on really early stage organizations. So maybe you know, as if you look at budget as an indicator of size and heft, you know, organizations averaging 100,000 USD for an annual budget. And for organizations that size, leadership is everything. You know, when I look at our portfolio, the best organizations are defined by incredible leaders and the worst organizations are defined by incredibly bad leaders. <laughs> so because of this sort of stage-wise focus, for us, like delving into, into um, the character, the integrity, the track record of the, of the person at the top is really important. Now, of course, we want to help them build a strong bench and, and move, you know, their thought leadership well beyond just one person over time. But you know, in terms of vetting, that's 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 our job is to suss out um, who's got it. You know, that certainly makes sense, uh, particularly for the early stages. On the aid front, what guidance would you give to traditional aid or philanthropists to make their work more effective? Start experimenting. I think if I can cast a, a, a wide net, I'd say Western philanthropists really move slowly with with sort of experimentation and innovation while we really push our grantee partners to be uh, experimenting and trying new stuff and constantly you know conducting really uh, high levels of scrutiny and eval like we're not holding ourselves that same standard so I think there's a lot of right now we're in a transition period where there's a lot of Western philanthropists who are talking about talking about talking about, uh, localizing their grant making, about uh, appreciation for um, proximate-led organizations, but they haven't executed with a grant-making strategy. They haven't gotten about it, right? Huh. So, yeah, put your experiment hat on and call it an experiment. That makes it safe and small, you know, so it doesn't have to uh, start stoking those fears of, and those risks that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. On the advice front, if you could take a step back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Pay more attention in statistics class. <laughs> you know, when I, was, when I was in grad school, they, I, I, uh, they, all the, all the sort of uh, alums and mentors and professors said, pay attention in your quant classes. This is important. And like, yeah, yeah, it's way more interesting to talk about leadership development and all these qualitative aspects of building strong organizations and so forth. I wish I would have told, I, I would tell myself to pay more attention in stats. For sure. Oh, no, they were right. They were right. <sighs> <laughs> Would you like to offer a shout out to someone who has inspired or guided your work? Uh, yeah. You know, let me let me do this. I want to give a shout out to the rest of our team. I think that I get to, because of title and tenure, get to uh, get a lot of these cool opportunities like talking to you. Um, but I am very much standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, I get to learn from and hopefully trumpet the, the best practices, best learnings, uh, talk about failures, talk about successes from our team. But um, 
they do the cool stuff and I just, I get to talk about it a lot. Amazing. On the reading front, what is one resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in the industry? I love the sort of philanthropic skewering from Vule and Nonprofit AF. Our whole team sort of regularly consumes his blogs and his social media posts. Uh, he's someone who, as a as a doer who's outspoken and unafraid to sort of um, speak uh, truth to power, has regularly skewered funders for stupid fundraising funding practices and, and, and generally <laughs> well, for our ineptness, our lack of accountability, and our, and our ego. <laughs> and we're the cause of that. Uh, we we neglected to show the salary range on a job description we posted um, a year or two back, Africa side. Mm-hmm. And he called us out on Twitter, and it was <laughs> it was a sad dog for for a day. And I and guess what? Wow, the salaries now. So, it got it takes guts to call so out the funders. You know, nobody wants to bite the hand that feeds. Totally. I'm gonna have to listen to him on a podcast. <laughs> Which is a perfect segue to your next question. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I recommend that you listen to a podcast called "What Donors Want," which we sponsor. Um, it's notionally funders. I've been on it before. It's notionally funders telling doers how funders think, like what appeals to them, how to be successful fundraisers. But I think it's actually sort of a bait and switch. I think what donors want, the podcast is actually a pretty good primer for how donors should be thinking, feeling, and it's telling you donors how to be a better donor. At least that's how we've sort of understood it and tried to engineer it. And Vu, Vule, the person I mentioned with the blog, uh, was on it uh, in the last episode. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, check it out. Awesome. Great. Sounds good. And I really enjoyed your podcast interview on what donors want as well. I thought that gave a great little insight into your mind. So our listeners should also check that out. Andy, for folks that are interested to find out the latest from Siegel Family Foundation or from yourself, What's the best place for them to go to to get more information? Yeah, I mean, I, check out our website. Check out our socials. We're not. We haven't made it to TikTok yet. We're on <laughs> IG and Facebook and, and Twitter and soon. I would, uh, yeah, check us out. Reach out to us. I swear, our info ad is not a black hole. Some of the coolest random stuff are people with inquiries coming in. I can't say it will respond timely in a timely fashion, but <laughs> love the honesty. If, if you've got something interesting to say or propose, we will respond. So amazing. Yeah, shoot us an email. We're always looking to be inspired, and we're also looking to inspire others. So yeah, give us an avenue to do either, and we'll be we'll be grateful. Great to hear. Thank you so much, Andy, for your time today. It was super fun chatting with you. Thank you, Rowena. This is a real pleasure. Appreciate it. Andy's approach, in a nutshell. First, build the right team. Second, give them the resources they need to succeed. Third, point them at the challenge you're trying to solve. And last, give them the space to impress you. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to this show and your podcast listener so you get every episode just as they drop. And if you're really excited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. And if you like or didn't like some of the ideas in this show, let's talk about it. You can reach me on LinkedIn or at Rowena at 8 We'll see you in two weeks.